Hey friends, Elisa Childers here. Welcome to part two of my discussion with Mike Winger about the atonement. Is it cosmic child abuse? If you haven't listened to part one, I'd like to encourage you to go back and listen to that because we are going to jump right back into the second half of our discussion in just a moment. Stay tuned. Okay, so for hit, for for Brian and other progressives to hold this view, they have to somehow reconcile this with the. I mean, they have to deal with the Bible. You know, they have to say something about the Bible. So, how does he do that? What what is Brian Zahn's view of the Bible? Okay, so this is I found it um, really interesting as I was reading the book to figure out what he would do with this. Um, he has to ultimately reject a ton of the Bible, Old and New Testament, and not just the non-Jesus parts. There's like things Jesus says that Brian's going to have to reinterpret or just reject outright. So he needs some kind of system, some sort of, you know, format for how he's going to approach the Bible to get around the Bible constantly rejecting his, his teaching. So, yeah. so I, I consider it like a, like a two-step process. Uh, his first step is to posit that the Bible is full of contradictions. And, and in a lot of these places in this book, you're going to see Brian's on sound like internet atheists, you know, sort of, right. you know, off the cuff, attacking attacking the Bible, often from a place of being ignorant of the actual context of the things that are reading. But that really is what it ends up sounding like. So I'll give you an example. Um, on contradictions, uh, he says on page 30 and 31 of his book, it seems obvious that we should accept that as Israel was in the process of receiving the revelation of Yahweh, some unavoidable assumptions were made. One of the assumptions was that Yahweh shared the violent attributes of other deities um, of other deities worshipped in the ancient Near East. These assumptions were inevitable, but they were wrong. Now, when, when he says this, he's saying that the Old Testament has this, um, this misconception, not just on a peripheral issue, but on the very nature of God. This is, yeah. this is the nature of God. The, the Old Testament's wrong on that God has a, any violent attributes. Now, he, of course, calls them violent attributes. We would say he's a holy God who is the judge of all the earth. He calls that a violent attribute um, because he's going to straw man it. But, mm. but this is where he's actually saying the Old Testament's just wrong about the very nature of God, and it was unavoidable. Like God just couldn't inspire people to say right things about him. But he goes on and he says in, uh, in the same section, for example, the Torah assumes that Yahweh, like all other gods, required ritual blood sacrifice. And then listen to what he says next. But eventually, the psalmists and the prophets take the sacred text beyond this earlier assumption. Hmm. So first he says they were wrong about God, but don't worry, as the Bible progressed, the Bible starts to disagree with the old Bible, the new parts disagree with the old parts, and they correct them. Now, he goes even further than this, and he goes on to say that the Bible is in an internal battle. There's a war going on in the pages of Scripture where one author is literally fighting to undo the work of the other authors. And I'll read from page 14 in his book. This, it blew my mind when I, I saw this. He says, the Old Testament is often a theological debate with both sides making their case. Then there's this question. Does God require animal sacrifice? The priests and Levites say yes. And that's what we find in the Torah. But eventually the psalmists and the prophets begin to challenge this. David says, sacrifice and offering you do not desire. Burn offering and sin offering you have not required. Psalm 40 verse 6. In this psalm, David brashly contradicts the Torah's unambiguous laws requiring animal sacrifice. Later, Hosea claims that God doesn't want sacrifice, but mercy. Eventually, 
Jesus will weigh in and affirm the position of Hosea. Does that mean the Torah was wrong about animal sacrifice? That would be to put too fine a point on it. I mean, what? This is just. This is just. I don't want to be held accountable for my position. Is all right. he's saying. Yeah. Um, but he goes on and says, rather, the Old Testament is a journey of discovery. The Bible itself is on a quest to discover the Word of God. So mm. in short, the Bible contradicts itself. Um, now, what you can do, and I did this in my, my review uh, on Brian Zahn, is you can actually just look up these texts. He says David rejects sacrifice and is arguing against the Torah. But that's not true. David offered a ton of sacrificial offerings before the Ark of the Lord. A ton. Mm. Uh, in Psalm 20, verse 3, he says, uh, may he remember all your offerings and regard with favor your burnt sacrifices. Yeah. This is a Psalm of David. In Psalm 40, verse 6, the Psalm that Brian's on quotes to say that David is opposed to sacrifice, it's actually a Psalm about Jesus and how he will be the ultimate sacrifice. And that's how Hebrews 10 interprets it for us. It tells us, yeah, those Old Testament sacrifices, they weren't enough to please God. They weren't bad. They just weren't enough to, to deal with the wrath and deal with the sin yeah. And so Jesus comes and he has a body prepared for him. He's the sacrificial offering. Yes. So Psalm 46, it turns out, is arguing the opposite of what Brian Zahn says it is. He says yeah. that, uh, this is my quick overview of his interpretations of scripture. He says that Hosea rejected sacrifices and he uses Hosea 6, 6 for this. But when you read the rest of the book of Hosea, you realize God was temporarily chastening the people, but he was looking forward to the time when the sacrifices would be reinstituted and they would no longer be sacrificing to false gods, to Baals. Mm. And we get that in Hosea 3, Hosea 14. You just kind of keep yeah. reading, read the whole book. You know, it's good stuff yeah. to do. <laughs> um, yes. So, well, and I'm also reminded of Psalm 51, you know, the famous Psalm where mm. David is repenting for his sin with Bathsheba. And he's, it's the one we all know, create in me a clean heart, O God. And it says all of those, have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. And toward the end, he says, uh, you you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with burnt offering. And so often, people just stop there. They read that one little verse out of context and say, see, God never wanted those sacrifices. But what David goes on to say is the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. So he's saying God doesn't want a sacrifice from someone whose not, heart is not committed to him. He wants right sacrifices. He wants it to be done, uh, you know, fr from a repentant and contrite heart. Yeah, exactly. And even that Psalm highlights the idea that under the Old Testament law, there was just, just no sacrifice for murder and David had committed murder. Oh, and, yeah. Wow. And yeah. so it, it highlights that he just counts on God's grace and he counts on God's mercy which will be accomplished through Jesus, because that's what Hebrews tells us. Hebrews tells us that Jesus was able to pay for things that the Old Testament law was unable to account for. Mm. Um, and oh, so that's there's a great point. Yeah. yeah, there's even more neat stuff there, but it's about the fulfillment, not the rejection of sacrifice. And G Zond tries to quote Jesus as being against sacrifice. He weighs in against sacrifice, Zond said on page 14. But in, uh, in Mark 144, Jesus heals a leper, and after the leper is healed, he tells the man to go into the temple and present an offering uh, according to the law of Moses, which is in Leviticus 14, the leper was to sacrifice a bird. So here we have wow. Jesus actually telling a guy, go sacrifice a bird in the temple. Um, he also refers to himself as, and, and approves of the reference to himself as the Lamb of God, yeah. which is a sacrificial term. 
So th- this is just um, – <clears throat> it's rhetorically deceptive. Uh, but what he's trying to do is he's trying to say, hey, um, you've got to see contradictions in the Bible. Like see a battle going on because then he's going to help you pick a side, mm-hmm. right? He right. wants you to pick a side. He wants you to disagree with the Bible. That's the main point. He wants you to disagree with scripture. And so by by telling you it's full of contradictions, you feel like you have no choice. You, you have to pick a side. So yeah. that's step one is get you to think the Bible's contradictory. The step two is um, if you swallow that straw man, <laughs> then yeah. you have Zahn's solution. And his solution's really um, odd, to be honest. He sees Jesus as the solution, but you've got to listen carefully to what he means by Jesus because he doesn't mean the Jesus you're reading about in the pages of Scripture. And so, uh, in, in Don's opinion, Jesus will tell you which side to pick. You'll read an Old Testament passage and Jesus will kind of tell you whether you can approve of it or maybe disregard it or, or disagree with it. Um, so you, you think, oh, well, so I just read Jesus. I study Jesus and then I use him, but no, 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 you can't even do that. Cause even Jesus is where he's in the Bible. Yeah. And so the Bible itself is potentially flawed. He even thinks Jesus, maybe when Jesus told the leper to go and sacrifice that bird that you know, that obviously was a mistake because in Zahn's opinion, Jesus rejects all the sacrifices. Right. So what do you do? Well, Zahn says you have to have an artistic approach to this. Oh, <laughs> and That's wow. his words. He says you have to have an artistic approach. And, and it Just takes be you creative. to page... creative. <laughs> yeah, oh, yeah, very creative. Um, it takes you to get to page 205 in his book when he finally really exposes what he's talking about. His triumphal moment is a moment of self-talk where he thinks in... Uh, contemplative prayer that he's encountering Jesus and Jesus is approving of him disagreeing with the Bible. Let me read to you from page 205. He says, one day as I was sitting silently in contemplative prayer, I whispered to the one, uh, I whispered this to the one who was there, father, I don't believe you torture people for eternity. Remember that's his straw man of of hell. He he calls it torture. It's not what it is, but that's everything straw man. He never interacts with biblical views. And then I began to laugh. And the one who was there laughed too. There was healing in that shared laughter. Mm. That's on page 205 of his book. In other words, his, his version of Jesus that helps him to figure out what to reject from the Bible, it comes from his self-talk and his, quote, contemplative prayer. And whether this is wow. a, a demonic thing or just him well, imagining things, I, I'm yeah. not qualified to say, but the point is it's not Jesus. But it is interesting that he couldn't name who was there, but he says, I said to the one who was there. Uh, because I think it was, I, I think it definitely wasn't God, the one he was talking to. Oh, of course not. Yeah. There's another quote too. Um, this comes from an interview, um, where he was being asked about these things and he says, and now that you know his views on the old Testament, you'll understand this, right? He says, I never go wandering around in the old Testament without Jesus. So at any moment I can pause and say, Jesus, what do you think about that? And Jesus can say to me, Brian, what do you think about that? Well, it seems to me, Jesus, that in light of what you taught, we have to rethink this passage. And I think Jesus says, amen. Wow. So he doesn't want to put too fine a point on it, but the reality is, is he has a a false Jesus that he's using to disagree with scripture, uh, something Jesus most certainly never, ever, ever Mm. would have done. And um, and yeah, yeah, it's... That's really disturbing. Oh yeah. He pretends to exalt Jesus here, but in, in reality, it's a fake Jesus and, and ends up being a false gospel. And so to me, it doesn't, you don't really get a bigger deal than this. This is, this is yeah. not a side issue. This is a, a central issue to Christianity. 
Yeah, because if you walk around with, you know, Jesus, what do you think about this? And then you're having these conversations about scripture, you can make it say whatever you want it to say. Yeah. Yeah. Your Jesus will always look like you. Yeah. Your Jesus is always going to reflect what you want it to be, especially when your Jesus responds with, I don't know, what do you think? (laughs) You know, not to make, I I don't mean to make fun of it, but for Jesus to say, I don't know, Brian, what do you think? I mean, that's, that's just not, that's not the way to do hermeneutics. It's just not. And, and this is disturbing. And it, and there was something in your review that was really disturbing. And you played some footage of Brian recounting some of these ideas to some kids at a camp. I mean, these are kids who have gone to church camp and, and he's teaching them. So uh, what did he teach them about the Bible? And then, of course, listeners, you can go watch Mike's video to, to hear the footage for yourself. But sum it up for us, Mike, what, what Zond was teaching these kids. Yeah. So he goes to a camp, according to his own account, he goes to a camp and he calls him 13 year old. So I assume it's like a middle school camp and he holds up the Bible and he goes, Hey kids, I want you to know this is a real Bible I'm going to read from here. And then he reads from Exodus 21 verses 20 and 21. I'll just, I'll read you the passage from the ESV. He says, um, when a man strikes his slave, male or female with a rod and the slave dies under his hand, he shall be avenged. But if the slave survives a day or two, he is not to be avenged for the slave is his money. Now, Brian gives the kids an interpretation of this, and he interprets it as it's okay to radically beat a slave um, to where they almost die as long as they live for at least two days. And um, after that, you know, then if they die, it's no problem, no no issue. And then he asks the kids, which is a, a total misinterpretation of the passage. Um, and admittedly, that's a difficult passage, but when you read it in context, you realize it's a protection, not, not a, uh, right. not a, it's a good thing, not a bad thing actually. Right. But, uh, but he asked the kids, how many of you agree with that? Now, of course he's interpreted in the worst possible way, right? Yeah, he's <laughs> so, already given them, them the straw man. Yeah. So nobody's raising their hand to agree with it. Then he says, how many of you actually think it's wrong? And he raises his own hand to demonstrate to them disagreeing with the Bible, right? Mm. Then for those who raise their hand, he says to them, and I quote from his, from this clip, he says, you should disagree with that. But now we're going to talk about how, as Christians, we do that. Mm. So this is just a small, like, synopsis of, of his whole view. I give you a straw man, I ask you to disagree with it, and then I equip you with my fake Jesus way of disagreeing with the Bible. Yeah. Yeah, yeah he wants them to feel— to be a pattern. It is a pattern, and it's, it's, a, it's a tactic. He really wants them to feel so uncomfortable with the Bible that they're willing to embrace his new teachings. So, Mike, some people may have heard you quote, quote that verse and kind of scratching their heads about it. And then there are a lot of verses in the Old Testament in particular that talk about slavery and how to treat slaves and particular laws that have to do, you know, if this happens, then you have to do this with your slaves. And, and of course, for, for us modern and postmodern people, this just seems crazy and it's really hard for us to make sense of it. But help, help us understand how to make sense of what the Bible says about slavery, particularly in the Old Testament, those verses that Zond was quoting to those kids. Yeah, well, I can definitely give some tips. I'll try to give you like a quick overview. This is a pretty big topic. Um, I think um, one of the things to recognize is that, um, that Jesus kind of helps us understand a little bit as to why this sort of stuff is even coming up. In, in, the, in the Old Testament law. And um, he does so by talking about marriage. So let me explain this really quick. In, in Matthew 19, uh, they ask Jesus about divorce. And he, he says, like, divorce is not the way it's supposed to be. You know, what God has brought man together, let, or what God has joined together, let not man separate. And they said, 
well, then why did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? And they're appealing to the Old Testament law. They're like, hey, if divorce is, is, is a bad thing, then why did the law of Moses allow for divorce? And then Jesus responds to them, because of your hardness of your hearts, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. In other words, God allowed for what ended up being protections. This wife was protected in the case of divorce. She wasn't sent away and impoverished as a result of it. She had some protections. And it was because of the inevitability of divorce. Hmm. Um, because, it, because humans are fallen creatures. And in other words, a, it's God's regulating a bad thing because of man's wickedness. So whatever the law regulates does not mean that the law approves and, right. and so that's just an important thing to recognize. But that and this obviously, is referred to as case law, right? Yeah, this is referred to as case law. So, uh, so when we get to Exodus twenty-one, um, we have an example of case law. When we when we read the passage about this uh, servant who is who is beaten, and there, the, you know, the situation is like, well, what happens next? This is not permission to beat a servant. This is the, so case law, just like you know. Um, let me give you an example. Uh, in in the um, in uh, the same chapter of Exodus twenty one verse sixteen, it says that if a man kidnaps another man, or if he's found in possession of a kidnapped person, now that that's slavery, by the way. That slavery is fueled by kidnapping yeah. um, through, throughout human history, and especially in American history. Um, so slavery is the idea: I, I kidnap a man, or I'm found in possession of a kidnapped man. The penalty is the death penalty. That's Exodus twenty one sixteen. So God just rules out all kidnapping. Now, this doesn't approve of kidnapping. This is like case law. It's like, hey, if this happens, here's what you do. Mm. It's not approving of it. When you get to Exodus uh, 21, verse 26 and 27, it says that if a, a servant is beaten severely, like if, if his, da- his eye is damaged or his tooth is, is damaged, then he goes free. Now, I, I don't think God's only concerned with eyes and teeth, but you can break his leg and that's okay. The, the context of case law is, here's an example. If something like this happens, here's the rule. Okay, so you, you hurt his eye, hurt his tooth, you break his leg, you you severely beat the guy, they go free. Then you get to Exodus 21, verse 20 and 21, the passage that Brian Zond read. And this is actually really interesting uh, when you read it carefully. If the servant is beaten and dies, we already know what happens if he if he's beaten severely, he's going to go free. But what if he dies? Well, if he dies... The word there for the penalty, the, the, the master or the slave owner, whatever you want to call him, he will be punished is nakam. And that word throughout the Levitical law refers to the death penalty. Now, this is actually unheard of. In the ancient Near East, there was no law like it at the time, none. This, this person who beat a servant to death would get the death penalty. So it was, it was life for life. The, the life of the servant was considered as valuable as the life of the person who is in possession of the servant, which couldn't be by kidnapping because that would also get death penalty. So they had to have some other, you know, usually, usually contractually, they just chose to go into service, generally speaking. Yeah. Um, now, if he doesn't die, what happens? Well, it says actually that the slave is his money or the slave is his property. That's an interesting thing. It's tough to translate. But if you look at the whole chapter of Exodus 21, um, here's the context. If two men are fighting earlier in Exodus 21, if two men are fighting and one hurts the other and the guy's laid up for a few days in, in bed, the one who hurt him is required to pay for two things, pay for his medical bills and he's required to pay for his lost time in work. Then it asks the same question, what if that happens and is to a servant? So a, 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 an owner, a master, whatever you want to call him, a lord, he, he injures the servant and he's bedridden. Well, 
who's he going to pay? He's, he's the owner of the servant. Well, he pays for the guy's medical bills. That's part of the contract of him being the owner in the first place. And he's the one that lost the labor while the servant was out of work. Mm. So that's why it says the slave is his money. It's just a reference to the fact that he's already suffering the same um, consequences as when the two guys fight in the previous section in the same chapter. We'll be right back to continue our discussion with Mike Winger about the atonement. Is it cosmic child abuse? This is actually something I got to discuss with a group of teenagers a couple weeks ago at the Impact 360 Immersion Experience. It's a two-week experience for young people where they're going to get biblical worldview education. They're going to get theology and apologetics, leadership coaching, uh, community-based discipleship. It, It really focuses on the whole person. And uh, students are equipped to live as change agents in the world that they live in. It's a fabulous experience. And registration for next year is open now. So if you go to impact360.org slash immersion, you can find out more. And I think, too, another thing to keep in mind as we read this is that there's a bit of a translation issue going on as well, because... You know, we modern people, we think, you know, everybody grows up, you go to college, you get a job, you support yourself, you buy a house, you start your family. That's just, that's what we know. But back in the Old Testament times, everybody lived as families together. So, you know, your kids didn't go off to school somewhere and then start their own household. Everybody stayed pretty much in the same in the same household. And so they were very dependent on crops. They were very dependent on uh, uh, their their flocks. And, and you know, you could starve to death on your own in that culture. And so the, the word that that is translated into slave into English from the Old Testament is the word ibed. And in fact, there's a, a scholar, J.A. Uh, Matier, I'm not sure how to say that, but he writes, Hebrew has no, vocal, no vocabulary of slavery, only servanthood. In fact, this is why uh, Peter Williams, who's on the translation committee for the ESV, is advocating that we change the word slave to servant because we think of slave as modern Americans and all we think about is the, the chattel slavery from the antebellum South. You know, that's what we know in our history, but it wasn't generally like that. Uh, often this type of servanthood was when somebody was destitute, when they didn't, you know, when they were going to otherwise starve to death, they could voluntarily go work for another family. And it wasn't ideal. It wouldn't be the ideal way to live, but it was a way that people could work their way up and out of poverty. In fact, after seven years, the Bible commands uh, them to be given flocks and grain and released from their debts. And and so, again, not an ideal situation, but it was it was a way for people to avoid uh, starvation and avoid destitution. And so uh, there's another Old Testament scholar, uh, John Goldingay, who wrote, there's nothing inherently lowly or undignified about being an abed, this Old Testament type of servant. And, um, and so it's a lot like if you were to go get a job somewhere and live it, you know, like a live in kind of situation. And, and so some of the, you know, a lot of these laws were in place to protect. And then there was a different kind of slavery where there was war and then prisoners of war and things like that. But generally speaking, it's not the kind of slavery that we think of as Americans. And, and that's mm. really, you know, that's what we often import our context into it. Yeah. And that's actually the biggest issue here because this, this is, again, kind of a straw man issue because you see slave and all I'm thinking is I remember like watching Roots when I was a kid, Yeah, you know, and I'm like thinking of that. 
Right. And yet, yet that is absolutely not the case. So for instance, let me just run through really quickly some of the protections that God gave for the servants. I, I agree that it, servant would be a better translation, but that he gave for the servants, or if you'd say slaves, um, there was the, if you, if you were kidnapped, your kidnapper or the person later who's, you know, considered your, your slave master, if you're found in their possession, they die. Mm-hmm. Like that's how bad it is. Yeah. If you're beaten severely, you get freedom. You go free no matter how much money you owe. You're totally free. If you're beaten and you die, you're killed. Your owner or the person who did it gets the death penalty. If um, if you run away, this is amazing. Deuteronomy 23 verses 15 and 16. Here's the rule for runaway slaves. If someone comes to your town and they're a runaway slave, you're required to help them, to provide them a place to live in your town, and you cannot send them back to your master, to their master's. Mm-hmm. Deuteronomy 23, what, what ancient law ever had this? The whole, right. con- the whole country of Israel was supposed to be the Underground Railroad. Um, and so if you were being abused, you could escape it. It should be easy to escape it. And when you were released, like you mentioned in Deuteronomy 15, you went out with supplies. So um, under the Old Testament law, if you applied Old Testament law to early American slavery, it would have ended immediately. Immediately, yes. Yeah. Because that would have been punishable by death. Absolutely. Absolutely. Every town would be a safe haven. Kidnappers would be put to death. Abused slaves would be freed and sent out with supplies. Yeah. That's such an important point that that often when people are constructing straw men, it's so frustrating to me when I read some of this stuff because, you know, it takes a lot of effort and it takes a lot of mental energy and time and investment to research these things and to learn what's really going on and to, you know, it's so easy just to throw out a straw man of, you know, hey, you can beat the guy and, you know, he goes free. But but really, that that was to discourage that from happening. But often, it, you know, it's very frustrating when, when people construct these straw men because it's so, I forget the quote or who, who actually said this. I think sometimes I've heard it a attributed to Chesterton, but I don't think he said it, but it's still a great quote where it says the, a lie travels halfway around the world while the truth is still putting on its shoes. Mm -hmm. It takes time to learn the context of all these things and what these words mean and what it was actually like for people back then. But often, uh, it's just easier to, to construct a straw man, to make some kind of point that, that you're trying to make that fits your agenda. Yeah, and that's the uphill battle, honestly, for um, for those of us who are saying, "Hey, let's let's get clarity on these issues." Is that people often don't stick around for clarity, right? And so I, I've been wondering, as an as like someone who wants to do apologetics and this kind of thing, how I can better, um, in a proper way, uh, use shorter slogans, meme type things that mm. might effectively, without straw mans, without fallacies, respond to some of the stuff that I hear. And I was I was just thinking, it's just so effective that maybe we need to get better at it too. Yeah, well, that's a good point. So with this new kind of unique view of the atonement, there's obviously going to be implications for the Bible, which we just talked about. He's got to kind of radically redefine how to read the Bible and how to see the Bible. But what are some implications of this theory when it comes to his view of hell and final judgment and and issues related to that? Um, well, it definitely changes uh, his doctrine of judgment, his doct- his understanding of the gospel, hell, all that stuff. But he will say he doesn't want to have a theory of these things. He rejects labels for himself. He uses them constantly for other people, okay. but he but he rejects them for himself. It, my my perception is that it's universalism, um, that it boils down to eventual universalism. So he won't commit to it, but he implies it. On, on page mm-hmm. 140 in his book, he says, I speculate that hell 
is as eternal as the human capacity to resist the love of God. And thus, mm. hell is potentially eternal. So, like, God's just loving and loving on you, and the moment you stop resisting it, hell's over for you. Right. Um, he calls God's wrath a metaphor. Um, and one way to illustrate this is actually his own illustration from his book. He mentions two ladies, Becky and Belkis. And I, I won't share the whole thing. It's kind of long. But Becky is basically this annoying American, self-righteous, Christian, judgmental person, Bible thumping, mm-hmm. you know, like this. He just paints her as like the most horrible person. Right. And Belkis is a devout Muslim who is really great and helps her community and is a really loving, nice person. And in his opinion, this devout Muslim Belkis is obviously going to be going to heaven. He certainly implies that you must reject the idea that she won't, you know, that she would be in hell. What's crazy about this is that in his in his picture of Belkis, he calls her a devout Muslim, which means that she openly rejects Jesus as Lord, rejects that Jesus was ever crucified, rejects that Christ was raised from the dead, and thinks that the that the gospel message is believing the gospel or saying it out loud even is one of the greatest sins a human can commit. Mm. I mean, that's that's what a devout being a devout Muslim means. Right. So what's clear from Brian's perspective is you can openly reject the gospel and be saved if you're a good person. It's works. Yeah, it's it's works. Now he won't say that. Um, he, he doesn't want to put too fine a point on it, right? But right. but that's but that's what it is. But this is because he doesn't think Jesus's death gained us forgiveness. So you're, right. you're, you know, you coming to Christ ultimately in that sense, it doesn't, it's not required to get you forgiveness. Forgiveness is just given. There's no purchase. There's no justification for it. You just need to decide to reject violence and be loving. And it seems that can happen after death. Um, yeah. yeah, he, he thinks that, uh, the gospel is, well, let me put it this way. Here's a quote from uh, page 144 in his book. He says, the gospel is not a perverse theological system in which good people are tortured by God for eternity. Christians must stop suggesting anything like that. Mm. Well, I've never heard a Christian suggest <laughs> that right. that good people are tortured by God for eternity. First off, right. not torture. Second, not good. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> so, exactly. Yeah, so it's just not a biblical view. Um, but he does obviously think that there's that people are good, mm. and that that I think means that he's rejecting the gospel, and it, it amounts to uh, uh, universalism. And that's the probably one of the worst implications. He's demonizing God's justice and the mm. ultimate gospel itself. Um, but when it comes to hell, um, his views of hell are that hell is not the holy, just judgment of a perfect God on people's sins. You know, you get a false dichotomy. Either you accept hell as, on page five, he says, welcome to God's torture chamber, the mm-hmm. Almighty's eternal Auschwitz. Wow. Um, yeah, he's, he calls the preaching of coming judgment evangelism by terrorism on page three. And he even says, because I've gotten this far— which which really struck me so much was he was saying, this is what I used to preach. You know, he was yeah, saying, I, I, I used to preach this stuff. And I, I remember reading that going, I wonder if he ever understood the real gospel ever. If, if he's identifying with that, saying, I did that, I preached, mm-hmm. I tried to scare people into, you know, I, I don't know if he used those words exactly, but that's kind of the implication was that I was doing this gospel, this evangelism by terrorism. Uh, it, it made me wonder if he's ever truly known the real thing. I think that's a really good point, you know, and sometimes I, you read such horrific statements about God and the gospel um, that, that you start to assign, at least I do start to assign negative motives to people, but it, it is possible that, that he's never known the gospel because if, if we take him at his word, then that's the case. He went from preaching um, this weird straw man 
version of Christianity to this false Christianity. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So he, he calls this stuff evil. He says Jesus would never, ever preach what he calls evangelism by terrorism. I mean, but in Luke twelve fifteen, Jesus says, I'll warn you whom to fear. Fear him who after he's killed has authority to cast you into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. In fact, yeah. he tells us that the role of the Holy Spirit, one of the things is to, to um, convict men of judgment to come. Hmm. Judgment to come. So, that, I mean, this is, yeah, but but Brian Zahn, he summarizes Jesus' teaching on hell on page 136 in his book. He says, Jesus' teaching on hell is basically this. If you refuse to love, you cannot enter the kingdom of God and will end up a lonely, tormented soul. And he describes hell as, hell is God's love wrongly received. Hmm. So, as, as I try to put it together, it sounds like he's saying hell is where God is like loving you constantly and actively, but you don't like it and you don't want it. Yeah. And you're going to continue to experience like, ew, I don't like this until you decide you like it. Right. And yeah. like, that is such a strange view of hell. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, and he grounds a lot of his, as far as I've gotten in the book, he grounds a lot of his theology in it because he brings it up a couple times. He brought it up in the debate with Michael Brown that he grounds a lot of his theology in the parable of the prodigal son. Mm-hmm. And and so, you know, he describes the son leaving and squandering his money and returning home, and the father freely forgives him. And, and this is where he brings up the idea of the whipping boy. Uh, he says, you know, the father didn't have to go grab a slave boy to whip in his son's place before he can forgive him, uh, which again is a straw man. It's, it's such a caricature of substitutionary atonement. Uh, but but it's it's also not really even what that story is about. In fact, in the story, it is about a price being paid because the prodigal son takes the money, he blows the money, it's all he's he's lost it all, and so somebody's going to pay for that. So, you know, the money is gone. Mm-hmm. So either the father's just going to you know get, he's going to end up paying the price because that money is gone, or there won't be, or maybe he'll replace the inheritance in which he's paying for it, or the son pays for it because he lost it. But either way, the money is gone. So somebody paid for that, you know? And and so the beauty of the gospel is that Jesus pays for what's lost. It's not about a petty, violent deity thinking up the most sadistic way he can to torture his son. But it's mm-hmm. it's God himself saying, I'll pay the debt. I'll cover it. You know, come home. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And it's it's odd that he's going to take just one parable of Jesus that's, right. not, uh, that's not about hell and use it as being about about, uh, or excuse me, it's not about judgment and not about, uh, atonement. And he's going to use it to talk about atonement. Right. Um, and so he's, he's arguing from silence. He's arguing from what's not there and what the parable's not about to refute like other places where Jesus talks about weeping and gnashing of teeth and things like that, that are very real things. Right. Um, so real quick, does, does he deal with original sin in this book? Does he speak on that at all? Does he think we're inherently good or does he affirm that we have a sin nature? I, I, you know, I don't recall, um, any point where he directly addressed it. And I'd imagine that if that's the case, if my memory is right here, then that may be on purpose. Um, I do think that for instance, his stuff on hell is very sketched. It's just a rough sketch. Mm. He has one chapter on it, you know, and I think that I would expect him to put out more content on this sort of stuff in the future. Um, but he obviously thinks, um, that there's such thing as good people. Yeah. In the sense of, in the sense of not like, oh, as far as people go, you're good. But in the sense of you shouldn't go to hell because you're a good person. Right. Um, and that's, yeah. you know, that's definitely a problem. But I don't know of him, him speaking about uh, original sin. Okay. Well, I, you know, I can see how his viewpoint might be attractive to a Christian who struggles with 
some of what they read in the Bible, uh, particularly in the Old Testament, if they don't have much context uh, or, you know, a, a framework within to, to analyze it. And even I can see how his approach to atonement could be attractive to somebody who had a real abusive father or if they're if their concept of fathers is they're the, you know, flying into a rage over nothing and that was their experience. And then they're, they read about the wrath of God and they're applying that. And then Zahn comes along and they're like, Oh, that makes so much more sense. And so I can see why it would be attractive. Um, but as we close out here, you're, you know, you're a pastor. What advice would you give to Christians who might be curious about this view or who might have heard the traditional view be referred to as cosmic child abuse? And then you know, maybe they're tempted by it because it sounds more loving. It sounds much easier to swallow. Uh, what, what would your advice be? Um, well, I, I would have a bunch of advice if I could just kind of give you like six points. <laughs> yes, please do. <laughs> that, uh, that I have for you. The, the first thing is this is just to reject the misrepresentation, not the truth. Mm. Um, realize that what you're battling with now is a misrepresentation of God, a bad understanding of God. And you want to reject that bad understanding. You don't want to reject the truth that someone twisted into the bad understanding. And so, for example, like read Psalm 73, where the author of the Psalms like, man, I, I thought that God was unjust. I was struggling. I had almost failed. My feet had almost slipped. I was like, he was ready to like lose his faith. And he thought, what's the point in serving God? Like none of this stuff makes sense. And finally, at the end of the Psalm, he just has this awareness. He grows in his knowledge of who God is and the truth is revealed. And he goes, wow, I was so foolish. What was I thinking? I was wrong. Um, so you're struggling perhaps with, with um, concepts related to the Bible, but what you're struggling with is that you don't properly fully understand them. And this is not new at all. This has been going on forever. Jesus was misrepresented. There were people who thought all sorts of wacky things about him. Oh, he's going to destroy the temple. Uh, the cross itself was seen as horribly offensive to people. And there were some who tried in the second century to alter the gospel message so the cross would not be so offensive to people. Um, and yeah, that's, that really happened. And that's kind of what's happening here. There's a misunderstanding. And then let's just change our theology because of the misunderstanding. That, that's a bad idea. Satan's the father of lies. He's lying to you about the goodness of God's judgment and the goodness of God's holiness. And that's, I think, at the core of this. Um, yeah, I would, I would recommend going deeper into theology if this is you. If, if you've been struggling with misrepresentations, if you go deep in theology, you become immune to straw men. You're immune mm. to them because you may not realize what the Bible really teaches about an issue. You study it, and then when you hear a straw man, you immediately recognize that's a twisting of Scripture. That is not not what I believe. It's like knowing the real thing so well that when the counterfeit comes along, it's just really obvious. You don't have it, to study all the counterfeits, just know the real thing. Exactly. When you look at the holiness of God and you realize he is sublimely holy, he is wonderfully worthy, and you realize that that is an element that is missing in all of Brian Zahn's representations of Christianity, then you, you suddenly have a light go on. Mm. So I would also recommend listening to better teachers, <laughs> you know, godly yeah, men yeah. who honor God and his word, people who are going to hold fast to, tr to truth. And even especially like stuff like, you know, Elisa, your podcast is fantastic for this because you're targeting these kinds of issues. And so that can be really helpful. Um, also, uh, number four, my fourth piece of advice is spot <laughs> misrepresentations. Um, try to spot them. Try to get skilled at noticing when people are appealing to 
sarcasm, straw man, and false dichotomies. You know, when, when they're saying Jesus is either um, dying, you know, at our hands or dying at God's hand. And, and it's like I have to pick one and whichever one I pick pushes me into some weird theology. Instead, mm-hmm. it's like, no, 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 no. Just what does the Bible say? You know, because you're being manipulated when you spot these misrepresentations. You can immediately have your radar go up, filter everything very carefully. And um, five, I'd say the word of God outranks you. Mm. And this is really important. Trusting God involves trusting what God has said. Whether he's talking about hell or judgment, I know you want to understand it. And I I know you want to be able to reconcile it with what you think is proper and good. But your starting point should be this. God is holy and I am not the judge of God. Mm. This is huge to be able to say, Lord, even if I look at hell and, and maybe I, maybe I do misunderstand it. Maybe I think it's a torture chamber because I don't understand what the scripture really says here. But even then I could say, you know what? I will still fall back on trusting God because there is no way that God is wrong about what he's doing. Mm. There must be something I don't understand. It's really good. And then finally, I'd say uh, something that's encouraged my heart was Revelation 19, where it talks about God bringing judgment, wrath, and, you know, her smoke rises up forever, all this kind of stuff. And then we have the saints saying, hallelujah. Mm. And this blew me away when I read it years and years ago. And I thought, I thought they're not only like trusting that God's judgment is good. They're now, you know, in exaltation, they're at a state where they recognize the goodness of God's justice and they're willing to worship him for his justice. And this is to say that, um, sometimes when you're in the prison, you think that all the prisoners are there wrongly. (laughs) And then you get out of the prison and you meet their victims and you realize how right it is that they're in there. And so there's an element of seeing from that heavenly perspective, we see that God's justice is being accomplished in the world in a very real way. Even if uh, we don't currently appreciate it, we one day will. And I, I look forward to that. Me too. That is great stuff. If you want more, and, and, and Mike, you have a lot of Bible studies on YouTube where you've, you've taught through the Bible. Is that, is that right? Am I getting that right? Yeah, I've got um, like the whole book of Romans, First Peter. We're going through Mark right now. Um, there's over 300 videos, and it's all free content that's there. Um, doing a lot of verse by verse teaching as well as topical stuff and apologetics and all that kind of stuff. That's great. So, BibleThinker.org to learn more. Follow Mike. Get some of his teachings. Uh, just he's a great thinker, great apologist, theologian, and pastor. Mike, thanks so much for being on the show uh, today, and uh, maybe we'll talk again soon about you know some some other fun topic that you like to talk about. <laughs> that would be awesome. I really thank you so much for having me on. It was a, a privilege. Absolutely. enjoyed listening to this podcast, you can sign up to receive my posts by email by going to alisachilders.com and clicking the subscribe button or simply subscribe to the Elisa Childers podcast on iTunes. 